Welcome to the Theology Mom podcast. Today we are sharing a replay of a recent interview that Krista did on the Voices of WIA podcast with her friends at Women in Apologetics. You will hear Krista share her thoughts about the importance of the church, especially during an age when people are more spiritual and claim to love Jesus, but don't necessarily want to be a part of the institutional church. We hope you find it encouraging. And now, here's Natalie from Women in Apologetics. And now let's dive into our conversation and let me introduce you to tonight's guest for this discussion, Krista Bontrager. So a little bit about Krista. She is a fourth generation minister, a Bible scholar, a lay minister, an author, teacher, former university professor and homeschool mom. And Krista has a unique ability to communicate the truth of scripture in an accessible and practical way. Krista's gift to connect theology with real life is born out of her personal experience. Behind her academic career is a story of God's empowering work to triumph over deep personal adversity. Krista believes life is full of challenges, but has learned to see these as opportunities to grow and walk with the Lord in new ways. So please help me in uh, welcoming Miss Krista Bontrager. And thank you so much, Krista, for joining us here today. I'm glad to be here. Sorry you got stuck with the long bio. <laughs> That's quite all right. That's quite all right. So yes, tonight we are talking about the church and our title, our topic here is, does it really matter if I go to church? Yeah. So as we start thinking about that and talking about that, I want to ask you if you can just give us a definition of what the church is, both the local church and the universal church. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, I'm excited for the conversation because I think uh, the idea of going to church has fallen on hard times. Uh, there's a lot of conversation today about, you know, people are kind of opting out of the institutional church. And I think that's very unfortunate. So maybe we can have a candid conversation about that tonight and I'll look forward to people interacting with us in the chat and um, adding their voice to the conversation. Um, okay. So definition, I think the most basic definition is uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Um, we see in the old Testament that Israel um, in as part of the, the mosaic covenant in the old Testament, it was Scholars talk about how that covenant is, is in a way, one of the metaphors is that of a wedding and God is preparing Israel as his bride. And then when Israel is unfaithful in the old Testament, um, we see many references to them as a prostitute, as an unfaithful adulterous wife. Uh, no. We read in the prophet Hosea. In fact, he, he tells Hosea to go out and, and marry a prostitute as kind of this um, performance art, <laughs> prophetic performance art to illustrate the problem. Well, when we get to the church in the new Testament, again, we are called the bride of Christ. 
And um, just continuing that metaphor of uh, marriage as being an expression of the relationship that God wants with his people. And um, so, all right. So then that's kind of a, a basic definition and we'll continue to unfold that. All right, let's first talk about the universal church and then the local church. We'll probably spend most of tonight talking about the local church. All right. Let's start off with the universal church. Um, The universal church consists of all true Christians throughout history in all times and all places. Um, It is sometimes what we call the invisible church. It's because we don't always know who those Christians are. Some of them have come before us. Some will come after us. But there is that invisible church. And we see this expressed in Revelation chapter 7 and other places. I love this passage. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vision from the Apostle John of the throne room of heaven. And he says, after this, I looked And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne, before the lamb. Uh, And they were wearing white robes, holding palm branches, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord. So here in the throne room, we see the universal church. We see the members of every nation they're worshiping the lamb at the throne. So that is what the universal church is. I'm going to pause for a minute in case you want to jump in. Feel free to jump in. No, I think and, you're doing a great job. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, okay. keep going. <laughs> All right. So the church at its foundation is really a, what I call a corporate who. It's a, it's a who first. We often think of it as a what. But it's really a, 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 a who. Right. It's not a function. It's not what we do first. It's a who. It's an identity. Right. And we see throughout the New Testament these descriptors of the, the true church, the, the universal true church as those who are in Christ. It is those who are forgiven. It is those who are um, the children of God. Sometimes we're called the saints. A few times we're called the temple of the Holy Spirit would make a wonderful exercise to go through the New Testament and catalog all of the names for um, God's people there. And so first and foremost, what we need to know about the universal church is that it's a who it's it's that's what it is really grounded on, because one of the most common mistakes I see that Christians make is that they think it's a what they start immediately talking about the functions, what we do. And we'll get to that. We'll talk about what we do. Yeah. But first and foremost, at the foundation, it's a who. It's an identity. And so that's what we need to know about the universal church. Okay, let's switch gears here and talk about the local church. All right. So the local church is a group of members from the universal church Um, which is like a local manifestation of the universal church in a particular time and place. Now, a local church um, ought to consist of, you know, if we're thinking about who shows up on a Sunday morning, that ought to be all the true believers. But we also know that sometimes 
non-believers are there and they're present. And sometimes people that we think are true believers creep in and turn out to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Right. So sometimes the local church, <laughs> yes, the local church can, can, is a local appearance or a local manifestation of the universal church. But sometimes it also can have a mixture of non-believers in there that can come in. And so um, this is why we have elders and we can talk about that if you want to and the importance of elders. But one of the tasks of the elders, those who, who are supposed to be in charge of supervising the church is to discern the body. It's to discern who the true believers are. And we see this in first Corinthians chapter 11, um, particularly when it's talking about the Lord's supper, one of the functions of the elders is to fence the Lord's table. That's why we call it communion. And when somebody comes out of fellowship because of chronic unrepentant sin, we call it excommunication. Right. It's that we're, we're telling them they can no longer participate in the sacrament of the Lord's supper. So when we read that in first Corinthians, one of that, one of the important tasks of the elders of a good elder team is to discern the body because, and here's, here's something we don't talk about as evangelicals, <laughs> but it says everyone ought to, um, to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Um, in other words, knowing who the true Christians are, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why some of you are weak and sick. Right. And some have even fallen asleep. So, so having this task that our elders are supposed to do in making sure that we're teaching sound doctrine and discerning the body and who the true believers are, that's a big part of the task of the local church. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a, a big summary. So we'll start right. with that and then we can continue to unpack well, things. Right. So you mentioned, and this is a great segue into the next question. You mentioned that first we need to look at the who, who are we? Yes. Well, and then look at the what. Yes. So what is the local church's purpose or what is the purpose of the church? That's a great question. Yeah. Is looking at what I call the functions of the church. This is, this is where we get into um, the things that flow out of our identity. Okay. So a question, <laughs> I'll never forget my, an old seminary professor I had at Talbot uh, when I was taking the doctrine of the church class, he asked us, what's the difference between a church and a 12 step program or a oh. church and a baseball team? Right. Or a country club. <laughs> yeah. He says, and, and we really had to wrestle this through because our, our tendency is to talk about the functions of the church. So the difference between a 12-step program, a baseball team, and a church is, well, a church administers the sacraments and, you know, the Lord's Supper and baptism preaches the word. But that's not technically what makes a church. It's the identity of the people who, who are there. It's that they are in Christ. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So this identity is foundational. And then we can begin to look at the functions. Matthew 28, 9, or, um, 
Um, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we'll start at verse 18, is a really good summary, I think, of what we're supposed to be up to in the church. Right, right. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So our task as the individual, as individual Christians, but I would say also as a corporate body, is to go to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So it's two things. It's preaching the gospel, baptizing them, and then discipling them. The right. old-fashioned word for this is catechizing them right. and or teaching them. So this is two of the primary functions of the church. It is to preach the gospel and disciple the nations. So this would include things like preaching the word of God publicly, administering the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, equipping Christians so that each of us can preach the gospel. It would also include things. Another thing we don't like to talk about as evangelicals is engaging in church discipline. Yeah. Uh, these are some of the key tasks of the local church. Yeah, we're going to actually talk about church discipline in just a few minutes. So we'll get to that one because I know that's yeah. a question um, that some of our followers have had. Um, just thinking in uh, the realm of what is, you know, what is the purpose of the church? I want to kind of move into um, is the church still relevant today? And what I mean by that question is how has the church contributed to society, has contributed and shaped cultures and civilizations? We know we can look at church history. We can look at world history. We can look at American history and we can see how the church has um, contributed to society and shaped cultures for the better. Um, but even today, we still get that question. Is the church still relevant today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there is a sense in which this question actually doesn't matter right. <laughs> because the church's value is not contained in its relevance. Um, right. So we don't value the church simply because of pragmatism, simply because right. it has, it, it, it does some good. Um, right. Now I do think it does good. And I do think that there are reasons why it is still relevant, but the teacher in me just can't let the moment pass right. uh, in, in uh, making sure that we understand that as Christians, we don't value the church simply because of its um, relevance to our right. culture. The church has value because it was established by Jesus right. and it is the bride of Christ. It is the presence of God on earth intended to um, bring the good news and disciple the nations. Mm -hmm. And, and we are his bride. But as that gospel goes out, what we should see is how the nations are changed. That there is a certain, um, maybe there's some, some people on the stream who are into baking bread 
Uh, my friend, Elisa Childers has a hobby of baking bread. And um, the, if you've baked bread, you understand the idea of the yeast. And as the, the yeast goes into the dough, the dough begins to rise. And there's sort of this leavening effect that happens to the dough. That's a wonderful picture of what we should see as um, Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is fulfilled. As we go out and preach the gospel to the nations, as we disciple the nations, the nations should be changed. It could be slow. This leavening effect of Christians being salt and light into the culture might take a few generations. Because as we all know, laws alone will not change human hearts. Only God can do that. But as churches are planted and people's hearts are changed and transformed, communities ought to be changed. And then you have more and more communities changed. And then from there, um, regions might be changed. Nations might be changed. And so the good of the church ought to be this leavening effect. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of take it for granted, I think, um, how the church has impacted our culture in particular here in the West. That we have enjoyed, you know, a couple hundred years of things like caring for orphans, being seen as a virtue, hospitals established, schools started. Many of these were started by Christians, because Christians historically have been people of the book. And because we are people of the book, we start schools, we work on literacy, um, and we care for orphans, and we start hospitals. The common, um, the common law judicial system on which our country's judicial system is based, is based on a foundational principle of equality of um, before the law of whether you're rich or poor and inherent value and dignity of the individual. These are two things that we just take for granted. They're, they're just like in the air. We don't even think about them, but if it was not for the Christian worldview, right? I, 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 I am skeptical that things like racial equality would be a thing. This is an idea that we take for granted but it is deeply rooted in the Christian world. Right. Right. And so what's interesting too, um, when we were talking about if the, if the church is still relevant today and you said like, it doesn't really, what did you say? It doesn't really matter what if yeah. people are relevant or not. Like that yeah. doesn't, I mean, it's, 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 um, the bride of Christ. It's built on Jesus Christ. So, um, but just thinking, and I don't know if, I don't want to rabbit trail too much here, but um, just along that same vein of thought, we have a culture that's, that looks at the church and says, okay, well, the church has helped shape society, has helped shape civilizations. Um, but our society really isn't all that great because we've got racism or we've got, you know, 
sexism and, and things like that. So the culture says, well, if the church has contributed to society, but society is not good, then the church is not good. Right. In, in their way of thinking. Right. So what's the best way to approach that question if someone were to ask that? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. I have to admit, in 30 years of apologetics, I've never heard this objection. But really? Yeah, but let me see if I could take a crack at it, and then people can okay. come back at me on the in the comments, and that'll be fine. Um, but I, I think my brief answer to that is that the Christian worldview makes the assertion that humans are wicked. That's the default. Right. So we ought to expect a proliferation of wickedness. We actually should not expect people to be helping widows and orphans. We should not expect hospitals to be established or schools to be established. Um, so humans are wicked. That's the default. Just look at human history. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. So we should not be surprised by wickedness. We should expect wickedness. So the fact that people even have a sensibility to help the poor, the widow, the orphan is, I would argue, a result of this leavening effect of the church. We just aren't aware of it. So I, I think that we would do well to point out to our non-Christian friends that um, actually uh, when people say, you know, like, oh, the divorce rate is so high, it's 50%. My posture is it ought to be higher. Humans right. are exceedingly wicked. Right. Um, I think that, it, you know, the fact that it, it at one time was higher than that is really amazing. <laughs> and it's because we had a different value system and how I think we treated each other. But that's a whole other rabbit trail. But I, I, on the other hand, I want to say this, that I think that it's right for non-Christians to point out corruption in the church mm. because corruption among God's people is nothing new either. Right. Um, there were corrupt priests and prophets back in the old Testament, many examples of this. So this is one of the reasons why Israel's light to the nations was so darkened. So, what we ought to learn from that, though, is that when God's people are corrupt, the culture around us becomes darker mm -hmm. and our culture suffers. And so um, I, I, I think that people are right to, to point this out to us when our leaders are corrupt. Um, but that, again, humans are wicked and this is nothing new. Right. So in thinking of our topic tonight, our title for our video is, does it really matter if I go to church? So the question I want to ask you is, you know, we hear it. I can have a relationship with the Lord. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be a part of corporate worship. So why do I need to be at church? Do I really need to be at church? Do I really need to be involved in corporate worship? What would you say to that, Krista? Yeah, I think that's that is such a common um, posture these days. And um, I think that this is in particularly a distinctly American or Western question, um, mm. because we tend to 
look at ourselves first as individuals. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to parse this out a little bit because Christianity is about an individual's relationship with Jesus. My parents cannot believe on my behalf. My husband cannot believe on my behalf. One day I will stand before the great white throne and be judged as an individual. So absolutely there is an individual component to our faith. Um, but with all due respect, only a 21st century American <laughs> thinks that the American, that the Christian life is simply about or merely about a personal relationship with Jesus. That, that is such a great point because our brothers and sisters in uh, persecuted nations who are literally risking their life to go to church would not even, I feel like that question would be, they wouldn't even understand that question. If we it would were be peculiar that. to them. Yes. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that we have to um, disciple ourselves first and our children and people in our sphere of influence that once you belong to Jesus, you belong to the universal church. It's like there's no two ways about it. Right. And then you need to go align yourself with a local manifestation of the universal church. That is the universal assumption of the New Testament. There is no concept in the New Testament of the individual who says, I've accepted Jesus as my savior. I don't really need the institutional church. This is a distinctly Western, distinctly American 21st century posture. This, this is not historic Christianity. The local church is the means of growth and it is a critical means of growth for our health um, as Christians. Right. To hear the public reading of the scriptures, to receive the sacraments, to have people in your life who know you well enough for you to confess your sins to. Um, yeah, we confess our sins to Jesus and you can do that. But, but there is a component in the New Testament of confessing our sins to one another. You, you don't have to know everybody on a deep level, but you got to at least know one person on a deep level right. who knows right. your stuff right. and right. who knows your besetting sins. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully that person is more spiritually mature than you are and can um, give you wise and godly counsel. But whether you like it or not, you are attached to these people. When you are born into the family of God, you got a weird uncle, you got a crazy aunt, you got a whole bunch of brothers and sisters that you didn't choose. You are now part of a spiritual family. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, 
and we were all given to the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. You got no choice. (laughs) These are your people. This is now your tribe. And so work diligently to find a biblically faithful local manifestation of the universal church. I want to ask you, Krista, um, and I feel like this is probably its own um, episode, (laughs) but you were saying that this question, do I really need to go to church? Um, Do I really need to go to corporate worship? I can love Jesus just fine without that. And you're saying that that's a very 21st century American Americanized question. How did we get here? How did we get to a place where we are saying, do I really need to go to church? Could you just speak to some of that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, it's a it's a combination of things that. One of the wonderful things about being a Protestant. Uh Is that our faith is very, very much founded, um, you know, in the spirit of Martin Luther is it is about the individual first. You know, of that personal decision for Christ, which, again, I affirm. Each one of us will stand before the great white throne someday and will be judged as individuals. But I think that over time, Protestants have gotten to the point where we have become and we have put the individual at such a level that all the focus is on the individual mm-hmm. to the detriment of understanding, you know, First Corinthians 12. And I think that's a part of it. And then the, another component is our American sensibilities of the rugged individual, um, our pioneering spirit to go new places. And, um, you know, and I'm mostly speaking um, of European culture here is there seems to be something about us, you know, that we really love to explore and we love to pioneer and we love new things and we love to break new ground and we love to, to do our own thing. I think that the, the sensibility of American rugged individualism combined with the Protestant ethic of personal salvation coming together and then over time um, adding to that, you know, this kind of postmodern. Everything in our culture, I don't know if people have noticed this, but everything in our culture is geared to be customized for my personal preferences. I can customize apps that will store my personalized preferences. Um, I go to my phone and I, I put my thumb on it and it only opens for me. Everything in my world is constructed around me and my personal preferences. So why not church? Algorithms on social media. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> what we have to understand is the church is not part of the modern world. It's not part of the postmodern world. It is an ancient institution that has endured for 2000 years. So it's, it's an ancient holdover. So it's, it's kind of in a different category than other institutions that we. 
That's that's an answer off the top of my head. I might regret that later. But that <laughs> and that that was not part of the um, script. So so thank you for um, such a great answer just off the fly there. Thank you, Krista. Well, um, a question kind of speaking of um, to personal preferences or yeah. how do you choose a church with so many denominations? So there's so many denominations out there um, and then variations within those denominations. So how, um, as a Christian, do we choose a church? It really is sort of mind numbing, isn't it? <laughs> when, when Monique and I travel, sometimes we'll be driving through an area. We're like, there's a lot of churches on this street, you know, and they're like, they're next to each other, you know, and their parking lots are touching each other. What are we doing here? You know? And, uh, this is interesting. Um, some parts of the country, um, so I have a whole hour long talk just on this issue of uh, church denominations, their origin and all of that. So if people want to go check that out then go to my theology mom channel and, and look for that. Um, so when we think about things to look for, you're going to have to vet two areas, sound doctrine and healthy culture. And those are the two things, kind of big, broad categories that you're going to have to look at when you're looking for a church. So if we first talk about sound doctrine, how do I vet a church for sound doctrine? Well, we live in an amazing age called the Internet, and nearly every church has a website. So you can do a lot of homework before you even go. Um, you can look at the denominational affiliation if that's super important to you. These days, the importance of that is waning. Fewer and fewer people choose a church affiliation based on their denomination. But that would be one factor. Um, the number one place I go when I'm looking at a new church is I go look at find the statement of faith. If the church's statement of faith is five sentences, I'm clicking out of that really quick. <laughs> because that tells me that that church probably isn't going to have a lot of emphasis on sound doctrine. So you want to look for a church that has a very robust state of statement of faith. Personally, I always look at their view of scripture. Do they say scripture is error free or inerrant? That's good. Or do they say that it's only inspired? Mm. That's different. So I go look that that's one of my tests. I go and I look to see, um, what uh, they have to say about the atonement. The atonement is a doctrine that is falling on hard times right now. And right. so I will go see, you know, do they believe in a penal substitutionary atonement? Um, that's kind of a, a critical foundation. So statement of faith. I look for a church. I look for what kind of preaching do they do? Um, I go on their messages page. Many churches have storehouses of, of their old messages. So I go, look, do they do verse by verse teaching or do they do more topical? Is it mostly topical? If it's mostly topical preaching, I click out of that pretty quick. For me, that's a red flag because that usually means that the preaching is a little bit more superficial. If they're mm -hmm. doing verse by verse expositional preaching, that can be a plus that you can go listen to some some sermons and vet um, a really good way to do it too is go back to the summer and the fall of 2020 
look and see what kind of messages and events they did during that time. How did they disciple their people during that rough social season? Mm-hmm. That will give you some insight into how they're discipling. Also look for classes on um, how to study the Bible. What do we believe? Basic theology, basic apologetics. That will tell you they're an education-oriented church, that they're into learning, not just experiences. Right. So, you know, there could be some balance there. Mm-hmm. Looking at the philosophy of discipleship of kids and teens, how much Bible emphasis do they ha- have? Are they having their kids and teens actually reading the Bible in context? Or is it just one verse here or there? Right. And secondly, you have to vet the culture. After you go a few times, I always recommend ask for a meeting with the pastor and interview him. Ask him questions. You know, right. uh, another way to vet the culture is join a small group or to volunteer. Then you really start knowing people's business and knowing whether or not it's a healthy culture or not. Mm-hmm. So those would be my tips. Okay. Um, real quickly, before we move into a and a from our followers, from our listeners, um, we mentioned church discipline a few minutes ago. And so just quickly, what is church discipline? What is the purpose of church discipline? And is it really needed? Why or why not? Yeah. Oh, boy. As I grow <laughs> old, <laughs> I'm appreciating this issue more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I was a, a, a young woman, um, I didn't really understand it or what the purpose of it was. Now that I'm long in years, um, I've come to appreciate it much more. Basically, church discipline is having a mechanism in place when people are engaged, people in the local church are engaged in habitual, unrepentant sin. and looking at how do we shepherd those people? How do we help them um, and give them an opportunity to walk in their faith again, you know, to repent of their sins. The goal of good church discipline ought to be restoration. It ought to be repentance. Right. So if we look at Matthew 18, um, the first step that happens, if I notice someone is I think maybe they're teaching unsound doctrine or maybe they're engaging in lifestyle choices that seem like they're against the Bible. I go talk to them. I have a conversation. I don't gossip to my neighbor about it. I don't bring it up in my small group as a prayer request. (laughs) I, I go to that person. I say, Hey, you know, I heard you say this, you know, I ask, I don't assume I ask, I ask for clarification. I assume the best. I try to engage in a Bible study. You know, this was the process that I was in with my ministry partner, Monique, for like a, over a year um, when I felt like she had errant beliefs about race issues. And so it was just a lot of conversations, Bible study and challenging and everything. But we were making progress. But if the person is engaged in an intractable unrepentant situation that that you feel like is clearly out of step with scripture then you got to get other people involved Mm -hmm. why because you love that person right you want that person's soul to be preserved (laughs) 
and it is an expression of your love. So you get other witnesses involved, other people who have seen this behavior or heard this errantee. If the person still doesn't repent, then you bring it to the church leadership. You've got to, you've got to have a way of putting it up the ladder. And um, the worst case is excommunication. And historically what that's meant is withholding the Lord's Supper from that person because they are acting as an unbeliever. But the goal is restoration. And we see this a great example of this in uh, First and Second Corinthians, where there was a man engaged in unrepentant sin with a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And, um, but by Second Corinthians, he had, well, in First Corinthians, Paul tells the church, turn him over to Satan uh, so that he will be saved. And by Second Corinthians, he had repented and had been restored to fellowship with the church. That's the ultimate goal. Why is it needed? Because we aren't meant to walk the Christian life alone. Mm-hmm. When people talk about abuse in the church, my question usually is, is where was the, where were the conversations with the church leadership, mm-hmm. you know, that, that could have protected this wife who's been abused by her husband. There needs to be a mechanism in place that that wife can go to. Now, what happens when your leaders are corrupt and they send women who've been abused home with that abused, abusive husband? That's a problem. But in, a, in, a, in the system that God has set up, if the leaders act in a holy way, according to the commands of scripture, church discipline acts as a protection for the yes. vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It acts as a mechanism um, to help people be saved from their unrepentant sins. Right. Very good. Well, we've got a few minutes for Q&A. Awesome. Our viewers. So let's see the first question. Christian corporate worship seems very weird if you're on the outside. How can we maintain biblical worship disciplines but make them meaningful and accessible to people stepping in the door? Well, that's a great question. Um, yeah. Is that Elaine Voss who asked that question? That sounds like an <laughs> Elaine question. Uh, so she always brings the thoughtful questions. Um, yeah, I think this is the great tension. Now, um, in the 90s, there was the rise of what we now know as the seeker-sensitive movement. And that was the idea. It was... Well, let's have our worship. This seems peculiar to the outside world. So how can we engage in worship practices that will actually be appealing to non-Christians and, um, you know, maybe um, make them want to investigate the church? Um, I'm just going to be really honest. I am a skeptic of that approach. I don't think that approach actually works. Um, And there's some research to back that up. Willow Creek, which was one of the pioneers of the seeker-sensitive approach, in the mid-2000s did an extensive data collection on how effective that model actually was after being in place for 15 or 20. And they found that it actually really wasn't effective. Um, It didn't really change people's uh, non-Christians minds about whether or not to go to church. 
So I have, um, I'm a skeptic of it from a pragmatic standpoint. I don't think it actually works. My second point of skepticism is I don't think it's biblical. Um, because going back to our identity versus, versus functions, our, the, the local church ought to be a place for discipling believers. It ought to be designed for the believer because that the church is by definition for believers. So right. we don't do things um, in a way to please or to appeal to the non-Christian. But I will mm-hmm. absolutely grant that many things we do are very peculiar. If right. you're an outsider <laughs> uh, and every tradition has their peculiar things, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that is part of churchy culture. Um, but uh, I think that if, you know, some denominations face more challenges than others, you know, in terms of the weirdness. Right. I will absolutely grant that from an outsider's perspective, some things we do seem strange. It seems weird. Yes. Okay. So the next question, if your teen doesn't want to go to church, do you force them to go anyway? Yes. You are the parent. Right. That's a very easy question. Yes. We will stop being afraid of our children. Yes. We will have high expectations. Yes, we will do these things because you pay for their food. When they pay a bill, when they pay the mortgage, they can make their own decisions about where they go and when they sleep in. Right. Is it okay to change churches if you feel like you don't belong? Well, that's a good question. If you don't belong, we would really have to, I would need to sit down over coffee with this person. Like, what what does this mean that I don't belong? Um, I guess my first question, if I was sitting across coffee with this person, is what have you done to try to belong? Right. Have you you volunteered? Have you joined a small group? uh, Maybe if that small group wasn't a good fit, did you try a different one? Right. Um, What have you done to make an effort to be a friend uh, first? rather than waiting for other people to be a friend to you. I don't know. I think that's such an excellent point. I've heard a pastor say before, you are as involved as you want to be. So if you want to be in the corner alone by yourself, not speaking to anyone, you will be. But if you want to be out there um, volunteering, getting to know people, getting involved, um, serving, that serving will get you connected to, to friends and, um, I would say to that, um, just my two cents is start serving. Start I, serving. I agree. Yeah. I mean, that's really how you get to know people is go sign up to volunteer at VBS or if you're shy, sign up to make the coffee. Like there's, there's different things for different people. If your church has a children's ministry, volunteer there because they are always, <laughs> they're always needy. They always need help. I don't care how, what size your church is. Children's ministry always needs help. Um, Okay, another question. What about the cases of the church failing to protect members and allow leaders to abuse them? How should we step up for the defense of others and bring those to justice? Amy Burks, is this your question? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, 
So what do we do about churches failing to protect members and allowing leaders to abuse them? Okay. Well, first of all, we've got to have a very clear definition of abuse. Because mm. this is this is a term that is being redefined right now in yes. our culture. And so we're going to have to really parse out, like, what do we mean by abuse? Um, some people would say, uh, you know, the elders having a conversation with me about being engaged in habitual unrepentant sin is abuse. Right. Um, and I would say that's not abuse. That's them loving you and trying to call you to repentance because they care about your soul. So I think we would first have to really define that. Um, if leadership is corrupt, there's a reason why God is so harsh with leaders because they will be judged more strictly than the lay person. If your if your leadership is corrupt, then it's a question of, you know, what are you up for? Like how not everybody's up for having 20 hard conversations and fighting for um, a situation. Not right. everybody's up for that. Some people are up for that. Uh, others are not. Um, so that's a big factor as, you know, what are you up for? How, how hard do you really want to fight? What do you feel like God's calling you to? Um, sometimes God seems to call people to stand and fight corrupt leadership. Other times God tells people to, to leave and go somewhere else and heal. So I can't tell people what to do unequivocally because God's the only one that could do that. Now, if we're talking about issues that are illegal, that type of abuse, you need to call the, the authorities. You need to call the police. Right. Um, that's just, there's, there's no two ways about it. So it, it really, it really depends. Um, I was in a church situation a number of years ago that, um, you know, I, I think that I wouldn't say it was abusive, but I was definitely targeted in a way. And it was hard. And I eventually left that church. And those people that are that targeted me are still there. They're still in charge. And um, I did not stay and fight. So, you know, it just it depends on, on what people are up for. Well, as we start wrapping up, I just want to ask you, Krista, for those watching, how would you encourage um, anyone who maybe feels weary or frustrated or just confused about everything that's happening in the church, whether it is some type of abuse or corruption? Um, and then what just seems like even pastors and preachers that we've long respected and admired are, are turning. And I know you and Monique do excellent work as far as, um, you know, critical race theory and how it's coming into the church and things like that. But if there's someone who's experiencing these very wearisome and frustrating and, and confusing times in their church, how would you encourage them? Yeah, I would say first and foremost, you have to have your conscience be committed that church matters and that your involvement in a local church matters. Um, because it's hard. It's hard. I am not here to tell you that it's not hard. I have had my fair share of hard church situations. It's hard. Mm -hmm. But what keeps me going back is that I know that, um, 
I'm a hundred percent. My, my conscience is a hundred percent committed to trying to be in a local church. And it's difficult. My husband and I, um, no longer attend the church where we attended for almost 20 years. No. And that's been a very difficult transition for us as we've tried different situations. And I, that would be my second encouragement is don't give up, keep trying. Um, and it's hard to agree sometimes in our family, like we have disagreements in our family about our own preferences. You know, I think my husband and I would be happy going to a very nice Anglican church with, a liturgy and and that sort of a thing um our younger daughter much prefers drums and hill song and right. you know finding a good match is is challenging but you gotta stay in it and you know some some weeks we go one place and other weeks we go other places and we're still trying to figure it out we've been attending a house church on and off whenever monique and i are in town um, and that's been a, that's been okay for all of us. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's been good, but that took a long time for us to find that situation. So I would say, have your conscience, be sure I'm going to keep persevering. I'm going to keep going and then just keep trying. And also, um, understand that what you see on social media with all the, the big Eva pastors, all the well-financed pastors and the pastors that are part of the what I call the evangelical system and machine. That's not real life. That's right. That's just not real life. That's that's social media pastors. Mm -hmm. There are so many faithful pastors with a hundred people, 200 people in their churches, grinding it out for the gospel, yes. to the best of their ability and the glory of God. Go find those people. Mm -hmm. Stop looking at, social media pastors for inspiration um, and mega churches uh, go find a faithful pastor, even if it's in a smaller church. I agree. That's such a great point and a great way to end our episode tonight. Krista, thank you so much for joining us. Thank oh, you. My we pleasure. Love you. We love you here, here at women in apologetics. We love you and Monique so much. So, well, thank you all for joining us. That concludes tonight's episode of Voices of WIA. Thank you for joining us. If you want to become better equipped for everyday conversations on these type of important topics, check out our recommended reading list on our website under the resources menu, and you'll find recommended reading list. So check that out. And then also, if you aren't already, consider partnering, partnering with us by becoming a donor. As a 501c3 nonprofit, we depend on your gifts to grow and fulfill our mission. And this also concludes the first episode of season two of Voices of WIA. And mark your calendars and be sure to join us next month as we chat with Elizabeth Erwinowitz on how we can overcome the statistics and raise our children to have a biblical worldview. So we are excited to be back and look forward to seeing you monthly as we talk with like-minded women and encourage each other to seek and defend the truth. And make sure you are following us on all our social media platforms for future announcements. Have a great evening.